to those verses, you learned something that happened in my life a long time ago. First year in college, first semester, and uh, I was assigned to the class, my schedule was doing class in calculus. I should have been put in the remedial, whatever they are, to get me there. But no, I was thrown into the full-blown college-level calculus. The professor gets up and he, he starts putting equations and things on the board, and I'm like, I'm lost. Day one, I'm lost. I don't even know what the symbols mean, let alone how to answer the equations. And that uh, comes to my mind because when you study prophecy, it's easy to kind of find yourself in that situation. Like, this is too much. This is, uh, there's too much detail, there's too much knowledge, there's too many things to put together, all these charts, all these uh, verses you got to pull together from the whole of Scripture, and you can just feel like, well, I can't get this. Now, I'm not accusing you of being in that situation, but I do know how many hours it's taken me to get to the point where I can teach it. So it's really unreasonable to think that I can take what I have studied for you know, long periods of time and give it to you in an hour and you fully get all of it. So don't stress over that. You don't have to know all the details. You don't have to answer all the questions. You don't have to work all the equations. But what you do need to get is the application. Because teaching, whether it's teaching, preaching, whatever it is, a lesson is not learned until it's applied. Until then, it's only information. Good information, perhaps. Helpful. But you've got to get to that point where you apply it. Even your Bible reading, same way. Great that you read the Bible, but what's the end result? What's the the completed process, that's when you apply it to your life. So that's what I want you to get this morning, and that's going to come on the end, but in the process of getting to the end of the lesson, the Holy Spirit's probably going to reveal something to you along the way that is applicational to your life that you need to write down. So anything else, sit back and enjoy it. See what God's Word uh, gives us in its intricacy, in its accuracy, in its perfection, and uh, begin to look at today, the day in which we live, differently than maybe you do. Because when we look around our world, when we see everything that is going on, when we experience own personal suffering and so forth, it's, it's easy to lose perspective of all the blessings and all the promises God's given to us. So let's kind of approach it that way today. And uh, we've got a few scripture verses here that will help me at some point along the way, not to have to turn to another one. You did put his hand up this way. Anybody else want to volunteer? Kind of like in the armed services here, you want to volunteer? <laughs> <laughs> I was never in the armed services, but I understand that was a
So we're studying the Olivet Discourse, and which we are in Matthew chapter 24. Now, it extends to chapter 25 as well. We're certainly not there yet. But the latter part of chapter 24, so the balance of chapter 25, is a whole lot more fun to study. Because you've gotten all the details and all the how it all fits together, kind of, you've gotten through that, and then you begin to get some real um, it's interesting information in the form of parables and teachings that Jesus gave in regard to it all. But we got to get there first. So, context. So far, we have covered eight verses. We're getting ready to deal with verses 9 through 15 this morning. Having completed an overview of the first half of the tribulation in verses 1 to 8, Jesus now continues with an overview of the second half of the tribulation. That's in verses 9 through 14. And then he, he will add verse 15 onto that as well. But you have to remember, these first 14 verses are an overview of the entire tribulation period. It doesn't have a lot of specifics. For that, you've got to go to the book of Revelation. And my temptation is to go to the book of Revelation and delve into all that, but we can't do that. That's, that's for another study. We study the book of Revelation because that would take forever. Uh, there will be some spots along the way that we will clue you into the same thing that's going on in the book of Revelation versus Matthew 24. But just keep in mind, this is a general overview. So you're going to read this, you're going to say, well, I didn't read that in the book of Revelation. But if you've read the book of Revelation, it's there. And it takes some picking it out and seeing it because it's, it's laid out chronologically for the most part in the book of Revelation. And here it's just an overview. It's sort of roughly chronological. Now, verses 8 and 9, the last verse of last week's and the first verse of this week's lesson, verses 8 and 9, contain some specific chronological markers that we need to take note of. These markers in the text will separate the first and the second halves of the tribulation. So let's look at them. The chronological markers. Verse 8 says, so he's, he's done the first half. Verse 8 says, but all these things, the first part of the, of the study, the first half of the book of Revelation, excuse me, the first half of the tribulation. Um, but all these things are merely the beginning of the birth pangs. So we all understand the process of giving birth. There are birth pangs, there are contractions and all that that start and they're far apart and they're not as intense and then they become closer together and more intense. That's exactly what the judgments of God is going to bring upon the earth during the tribulation period. And what he is saying here to us, everything we've covered so far, the first half, that's just the beginning. But there's a second half. And we see that in the next verse. Then, then they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you. 
and you will be hated by all the nations because of my name. Now, this is specifically applicational to the believing Jews of that day, and we'll see, see that more as we go ahead. Uh, but it will also include Gentile believers as well. It's just that when Matthew 24 and 25, with Matthew 24 and 25, Jesus is speaking to his disciples, they're Jews. So, especially when we get past verse 14, that next part, which we're going to just give you a brief introduction to today, that's going to be specifically applicational to Jewish people who come to Christ at that time. Because that's who he's speaking to. Now, we'll probably mention this later, but Matthew 24 and 25 is a Jewish perspective on the end times. The book of Revelation is a more of a Gentile perspective on the end times. We have to kind of recognize that. So, the first half, verses 4 to 8. Remember the first three verses was the, the temple, and what Jesus said about the destruction of the temple, and the questions that the disciples had, which he is now answering. So we've looked at the first half, verses 4 to 8. Now we're ready to move into the second half, having noted those chronological markers there in verses 8. And nine. So we'll be looking at 9 through 14 first, which is the second half of the tribulation period. Again, it's an overview, an overview of the second half. Matthew 24, 9. Then they will deliver you to tribulation, will kill you, and you will be hated by all the nations because of my many. You've already read that. There's the verse. The first thing that he mentions is persecution. Now, Jesus is talking about events, things that will happen, but he's also talking about time frames in which they will happen, because it's an overview. Verses 9 to 14 focus primarily on the persecution of Jewish believers. It's not that Gentile believers won't suffer, it's the context that people are speaking to so there'll be a particular emphasis here on that. In contrast, the book of Revelation was written to the church, to Gentiles. Persecution and martyrdom align with the fifth seal. That's a seal, sorry, should be a singular. Uh, you go to Revelation 6, has the six seals. By the way, there's seven seals there, but the seventh one is not elaborated on. That's because the seven trumpets are the seventh seal. And the seventh trumpet eventually is not elaborated on either. That's because the seven bowls of wrath are the seventh trumpet. So that's where we see that tremendous ramping up of judgment in intensity and amount at the end of the Revelation period, the tribulation period. But in Revelation 6, 9, 11, you can circle that, you can read it later. It talks about the Antichrist persecution of believers. And that's what verse 9 refers to. Jesus is just giving us a one-sentence overview of that. So the first word you're going to fill in on your sheets right here, persecution, number one. I'm going to let you fill in the, the general overall words because that kind of keeps us all focused. But too many other places we start filling in all these words and we'll all get lost in those details. Matthew 24, verse 10. He continues. 
At that time, many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. This is apostasy number two. Many will fall away. It began, the second half begins with his overview. He begins his overview with this concept of persecution, this, this reality that's coming. But apostasy follows. Due to persecution, probably in all regard, in all reality, that's probably because of the persecution. It's associated with the Antichrist and comes after the midpoint. Many will renounce all association with Christianity. Now we know eventually in the second half, there'll be a worldwide religion introduced by the Antichrist. And uh, it'll be the only acceptable one. All other religions, you know, pretty easy for most religions to just roll themselves into a new religion. But Christianity is not a religion. And you can't do that. When you walk away from faith, you're walking away from salvation by grace through faith, not the works of men. You can't replace works with works um, because we don't believe in works. In 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 3 and 4, Paul said, well, let, let me turn there quickly. Uh, 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 3 and 4. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come. That is, he's speaking of the day of the Lord, which is a portion of the latter part of the, that occurs in the latter part of the tribulation. He mentions in the previous verse. Um, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. That's the Antichrist. So, uh, we see this in Matthew 24, we see it in the Second Thessalonians, we see it over in the book of Revelation. <clears throat> it's a great departure. Now, remember that when we did uh, Matthew 13, we discussed how many people in the world profess to be Christians. It's Christians, at least those who profess Christ, are the largest religious body in the world. Even if you cut it in half and think half of them really, you know, just professing and not really truly born again believers, we're still the largest group in the world. But think about that half that we, we just kind of theorize, even if half are only believers uh, in profession, they're not really uh, not really saved by faith, they're just, they go to church, they're religious, and they kind of made Christianity a religion in their mind and heart, not uh, in their churches and denominations. Uh, very easy for them to exit Christianity, right over to the new religion uh, that the Antichrist will institute. But the ones that are truly believers are not going to do that. Now they're the ones that are going to come under persecution. Of course, thank the Lord, you and I are not going to be there. Let's go to verse 11. Many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. Spiritual deception. For a new one world religion to take hold, there's got to be a lot of spiritual deception. A lot of people that maybe grew up in Christian environment or went to church as young people, whatever it was, maybe never born again at all, but Christian in name and profession, again, a religious thing for them, they 
going to be deceived. If they've heard truth, maybe you haven't entered into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, but they've heard truth, heard a lot of it, but they're going to be easily deceived because the Spirit of God doesn't indwell them and give them that illumination. Now, in the book of Revelation, the false prophet, you have the Antichrist, the false prophet, which comes along and does miracles, and then there's this establishment of this new religion, worldwide religion, all of that involves, uh, or all that comes under verse 11. There will be satanically empowered and inspired miracles done by the false prophet during those days, and uh, many will be deceived, spiritual deception. Verse 12, because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. Now this is one version of the Bible without the context would probably convince all of us the tribulation has already begun. <laughs> we are in a day of lawlessness, even here in America. It's not that law has been completely taken away, but it's been compromised. Uh, our legal system, all the way up through court system. Decisions are made not on the basis of justice, but on the basis of what certain people with certain viewpoints want to have happen. Not in every court, not with every judge, but, but many. You look on our streets. I mean, you turn on the morning news every morning. How many people were murdered in Houston or Chicago? And uh, <clears throat> It's just everywhere, throughout our nation. Uh, we are living literally, I think, in the what, what some Bible teachers call the shadows of the tribulation. Because, no, we're not in the tribulation, but we can sure see that we're experiencing a lot of things that are certainly going to happen and will be increased in volume and intensity in the tribulation. The lawlessness, lawlessness of which Jesus spoke refers to the lawlessness associated with the Antichrist. So again, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 7 to 10. Just, just read what Paul says here. Uh, for the mystery, this is 2 Thessalonians 2, 7. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Yeah, that's what we've just been saying, right? It was already at work in Paul's day. It's certainly at work in our day. It's not, it's not at its apex, but it's, it's in, going on in the world. We live in a lawless world. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. I think this uh, is a reference to the restraining ministry of the Holy Spirit, which will be taken away after the rapture of the church. Verse 8, Then that lawless one, who will be revealed, who the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth. That's the end of the tribulation, the battle of Armageddon. Whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. That is the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power signs and false wonders, and with all deception of wickedness for those who perish because they do not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. 
But we can stop there. Let's move on to verse 13. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Now this is a curious verse. It takes some thought. When I was growing up as a young man, I would, any prophetic themes that got through to us in the church I attended, uh, which was very little, mostly just discussed by individuals who really didn't come to the pulpit, and, uh, and so on. And so there wasn't a real understanding of prophecy, dispensationalism, or anything like that. So this verse was always taken right out of context, just ripped right out of Matthew 24. And I've heard, I heard it so many times as a young person, he who endures to the end will be saved. Now that was, that was taken out of the context and used to support the idea that yes, you had to believe in Jesus, but number two, you had to do good works to hold on to your salvation and you might lose it. So if you were able to endure the rest of your life and you didn't mess up so Badly that God walked away from you and you lost your salvation, then you would endure to the end, then you'd be saved. That's not grace, by the way. That's works. You know, if that was true, nobody would be saved. <laughs> if that was true, we'd all be in hell. That is not what this is talking about. We've got to put it in the context, tribulation period, and he's speaking believers during the tribulation period. He's not talking about their eternal salvation either. Because we're secure in Christ. He's talking about their physical preservation. So the next one is preservation of life. Salvation. The salvation referred to in verse 13 is not eternal salvation, but the physical preservation of those who endure to the end of the tribulation period. Those who live through it as believers and are not martyred. Now, in Luke chapter 21, verse 19, when Luke records the Olivet Discourse, in Luke 21, 19, 19 his inspired commentary on what Jesus said is this, by your endurance you will gain your lives. That's the American standard and that's, that's a pretty good translation. By your endurance you will gain your lives. However, the word gain in Luke 21, 19 is an imperative in the Greek. It's in the imperative mode, meaning it's a command. So Jesus wasn't saying, if you're lucky enough to be one of the ones who make it through, you'll be okay. That's not what he said. He's saying, you do what you need to do, what I'm going to tell you to do, and if you will do that, a large group of you are going to be preserved. Because it's a command. Even in Israel, where the persecution will be most severe, God will provide places of refuge. So the command had to do with their fleeing to the appropriate place of refuge. Now, somebody has Revelation 12, 6. Okay. It says 1 through 6 here, did you say? Uh, no, just Revelation 12, 6. Okay. Not the whole thing. 
The woman fled down through the wilderness to a place prepared for her by God, where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. The woman here, we won't go back and try to put everything in context in Revelation 21. The woman here is Israel. She flees to a place in the wilderness where she's protected for 1,260 days, or the last half of tribulation. The ones who flee, the ones who do what Jesus tells them to do, and it arrives there, it'll be a place of preservation. Now, it's maybe puzzling that God would preserve those who do this, and, and yet God will allow others to suffer martyrdom. That's no more confusing than anything we see in history. There's always been Christian martyrs. And people that are not martyred. We tend to look at this from a human perspective and we think martyrdom is bad. But the church will never cease to exist because Christians are martyred. In fact, the church thrived and has thrived during times in history in which there was great persecution. And the ones that are martyred are spared from a whole lot more of the lawlessness and suffering that you and I go through all the time. Because they're ushered straight into the presence of God. So we, you can't look at martyrdom as being some bad thing not allowed to happen. It, it's one of those things that falls under, you know, God uses all things to bring about good. Then, and by the way, we're going to come back to this fleeing to the mountains when we get past verse 15, which is not this week. We'll show you why in a little bit. Well, let's move on to verse 14. The last comment on this overview of the second half of the tribulation. The gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. The end of the tribulation. The end of the age. So, we have worldwide evangelism. This has been mistaken, misunderstood, wrongly preached and inferred all throughout Christian history. It does not mean, it never has meant, that the church is going to win the world to Christ and bring in the kingdom. That's not scriptural. Now, Missions have impacted millions and millions of people over the years, and still today, in countries all around this world. That's true. But there's still places where the gospel's not preached. People don't have a witness. Not so in the tribulation period. The whole world will hear. The gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world. The tribulation period, in fact, will be the greatest period of evangelization in the history of the world. Now that's something we don't, I mean, we talked about this in Matthew 13, one of the parallels too. Something we don't normally think of, but it will. The 144,000 Jewish evangelists that are sealed and protected by God to go forth and spread the gospel. Um, the two witnesses, uh, and, and, and all the surviving believers around the world, from all those efforts, the world will be completely evangelized. Well, that doesn't mean everybody's going to accept the message. Everybody's going to hear the message. 
Okay. Now this brings us, and you should have had six fill-ins here so far. Persecution, apostasy, persecution, apostasy, spiritual deception, lawlessness, preservation of life, and worldwide evangelism. And now let's talk about the great tribulation. Verse 15 begins a recursive section. Now what do we mean by a recursive section? We'll illustrate it in a minute. But it means that at the end of verse 14, we're at the end of the tribulation. But he's going to go back to the midpoint and go over the second half again. Having given a general description of the entire seven-year period in verses 4 to 14, Jesus returned to the midpoint of the tribulation in verse 15, and that is followed by a more detailed discussion of the second half of the tribulation from a decidedly Jewish perspective. This is what Jesus called a period of great tribulation in verse 21 of Matthew 24. Because remember, when we talked about the seals, the trumpets, the bowls of wrath, and that ramping up. I mean, the seventh seal is the seven trumpets, and the, the seventh trumpet is the seven bowls of wrath. So in the end, it's just an explosion of judgment. So it will be the great part of the tribulation. Now let's illustrate what we're saying. Let's go back to our previous chart. Verses 4 to 14, an overview of the first half of the tribulation. Verses 9 to 14, we just now covered, are an overview of the second half of the tribulation, which Jesus calls a period of great tribulation in verse 21. We haven't got down there yet, but just to note. Now, what happens next? He goes back. He circles back. This is what we call a recursive structure. Comes all the way back to the midpoint. Verse 15. And that verse is all about the abomination of desolation. decidedly Jewish perspective. What's going on in Israel during that second half? And he does this because his disciples are Jews and they're asking the question from a Jewish standpoint, which is where everything began when they questioned and they didn't understand. He's given a broad overview. Now he circles back to the beginning. He said, now right here, this is really going to impact the Jews. Second half. So Matthew 24, 15, therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Now, let's not get confused here. It's not Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place. It's the abomination of desolation taking place in the holy place. And it's, it is done by a man, an antichrist, which, why, which is why we have the word standing here.
back and look at Daniel 9.27. We looked at it previously, but let's go back. And he, that is the Antichrist, he will make a covenant with many for one week. Remember the 70 weeks prophecy from Daniel 9. 69 weeks until that 69 weeks runs out just prior to the death of Christ. Then he tells him after the, the 69th week, the Messiah is cut off, the temple's destroyed. That was 30 some years later, AD 70. And then no 70th week. There's a gap in there, remember? There's one week left. And that week will begin when the Antichrist makes a covenant with Israel and the other nations that solves the whole Middle Eastern problem. For one week. But in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. You see, the temple's going to be rebuilt. It'll be the third temple. You have the one that Solomon built. The second temple, first constructed in the days of Ezra, and then Herod the Great came in and added to and refurbished and made it bigger and larger. That temple was destroyed in AD 70, so there's no temple there. But there will be by the midpoint of the tribulation. Now, let's suppose the rapture happens today. I wish it would. I think we all do. But let's just suppose it does. There's no temple over there. But by the midpoint of the tribulation, three and a half years later, there would be a temple there. The Jews are ready. They have all the plans. They have all the biblical data. They know what's supposed to be done. There is nothing but political and security things that are holding that back. The Antichrist is going to come in and he's going to, he's going to solve the whole thing and bring peace to the Middle East. The temple's going to be reconstructed. Remember last week we mentioned how they don't even have to destroy the, the shrine there, the Dome of the Rock, because that would be in the Gentile pool. So uh, whatever there is, politically, the Antichrist is a political wonder worker. He solves all that, and he allows the Jews to bring back the Old Testament sacrificial system. <coughs> Until the middle of the week. And then he comes in, he shuts it all down. He betrays, he turns on the Jewish people, he goes back on his own word, the covenant, the whole thing, he wipes it all out. He's now basically a point of having all power worldwide. And what does Daniel say? He will put a stop to sacrificing grain offering on, and on the wing of abominations will he come, one who makes desolate the abomination, the abomination of desolation. The abomination is he sets up himself as God in the temple and he makes desolate all those sacrifices and all those other things that can no longer sacrifice. He replaces the Jewish worship in the temple with Antichrist worship. Now, the Antichrist is operating at the behest of Satan. It's really Satan who desires worship, as he has from the beginning. But you see the same words. The abomination, which will make desolate. What did Jesus say? Therefore, would you see the abomination of desolation? So, the abomination of desolation. Paul told us that the Antichrist.
Christ would take a seat in the temple and declare himself to be God. This is uh, Anybody have Second Thessalonians 2, 1, 4? Did I give that one out? I don't think I did. All right, let me read it. Second Thessalonians 2, 1 to 4. Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, that you do not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first. This is the verse we read earlier. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. Verse 4. Who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. This is specifically revealed in verse 4 of 2 Thessalonians 2. And again, the abomination will involve the stopping of sacrifices and offering making the temple desolate. One other thing to note. Another aspect of the abomination involves an image that is made of the beast of the Antichrist, which will appear to be alive which will be set up in the temple. Now, we're not going to go read it, but jot that down and go read it for yourself. Specifically, you'll find it in the book of Revelation chapter 13. In other words, the Antichrist isn't going to want to sit there in the temple 24 hours a day, seven days a week, year after year, right? So, no, he isn't there, but he sets up an image of himself. Now, I don't think this is going to be a carved image like the idols were in the Old Testament. This is going to be something perhaps impacted greatly by this whole AI thing that's coming along. Artificial intelligence and the ability to duplicate in some kind of form uh, in live animated fashion that looks real. Something like that. And people will actually come there to the temple and, and worship the Antichrist. Okay, that brings us to application, and that's where we began. I want you to just, I just want to give you a quick overview. Satan's desire has always been to be like God. Go back to Isaiah chapter 14, 12 to 15. Let's see, uh, I got a mark here, if I figure out what I got a mark with. Okay. Isaiah 14, verse 12. And you have fallen from heaven. That's a reference to Satan. Called uh, Lucifer at that point. Until he fell. How you have fallen from heaven. O star of the morning, another name or title he had. O star of the morning, son of the dawn, you have been cut down to the earth, cast out of heaven. You who have weakened the nations, 
But you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven, I will rise, I will raise my throne above the stars of God. That's the other angels. And I will sit on the Mount of Assembly in the recesses of the north. And I will ascend above the heights of the clouds, and I will make myself like the Most High. Well, now, he didn't say he was going to replace God. But he said, I'm going to put myself on the same level. Might be in his heart he hoped to replace God. I don't know. He's always wanted that. In Genesis chapter 3, Satan comes to Eve form of the snake. What's he want? He wants her allegiance. God said, don't eat of the fruit. Satan said, have at it. God's lying to you. Why, why would Satan be concerned about whether they ate of fruit or not? He, he didn't. Other than she would be doing what he said versus what God said. He would be elevating himself to God's status. And when that happened, the dominion that God gave to Adam over the world, when Adam sinned, was lost essentially to Satan, who became the God, little g, God of this world, according to the book of Ephesians. So this world of lawlessness we live in is satanically inspired and uh, to a large extent manipulated and controlled. God is obviously sovereign over all that. That's what it's about. So, Satan comes to Jesus, Matthew 4, 1 to 11, and he tempts Jesus in various ways. Turn the stone into bread. Well, that was outside the will of God because he was supposed to be fasting during that time. So Jesus could have done it. It wouldn't have been wrong under other circumstances. But when God the Father had sent him there to fast and endure temptation, it had been wrong for him to turn the stone into bread. So what would it have been? It would have been Christ yielding his will the will of the Father over to Satan. He said, well, why don't you just, you know, uh, go up and cast yourself down from the pinnacle of the temple and the angels will spare you? And, and that would have been true. But again, it would have been outside the will of the Father. It was not God's will for him to reveal himself as the Messiah at that point. Which was what that would have meant. You know, but in Satan, see, what he's doing, he's trying to get Jesus to swap the will of the Father for the will of his own will. But then, he says, uh, here, let me show you all the kingdoms of the world. And they'll all be yours if you'll bow down and worship me. Well, how can he have them to give? Because he's the God of this world. Adam already gave up the dominion. Satan could have given him all, all the kingdoms of the world. Somehow, some way. Was it? But by the way, isn't that what Jesus is going to have in the millennium? But it was not the right time. It was outside the moment, outside the will of the Father at that time. So it would have been swapping, again, God's will at that moment for what Satan wanted. And that's exactly what he does and what he attempts to do in your lives and mine every day. Why does Satan care if we do something wrong? Other than he is the tempter. And when we do something wrong, we reject God's will and we accept his will. 
It is not, a, it should not be a surprise to any Bible student that Satan would set himself up as God in the temple and require people to worship him in the middle of the tribulation because he's always been about that same thing. And the Antichrist is just his human surrogate, so to speak, because Satan is a spirit. He's not a man. He can only manifest himself to men through someone like the Antichrist who is controlled, if not indwelled entirely by him. And when people in that day and age bow down and worship the Antichrist, they're bowing down to Satan. He's achieving the same goal he's always had, the same thing he's always been after. And he's after it in your life and mine every day, <coughs> as much as he can get it. 1 John 2, 15-16 says, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. For all that it is, for all that's in the world is what? Well, let's turn here and make sure we get the, the wording exactly right. This is 1 John 2, beginning in verse 15. Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. So anytime we love the world instead of God, we've given up, at, that, at least at that moment, for that opportunity, that, that time in our lives, we've given up the will of the Father for the will of the world. Verse 16. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but it is from the world. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. The lust of the eyes, Satan said to Eve, look at it, isn't it beautiful? Wouldn't you like to possess it? The lust of the flesh, he said, wouldn't that be good to eat, Eve? The pride of life, oh, you'll be like God, Eve, if you eat it. What did Satan do in Matthew 4, Jesus? Have at the, the stone, make it bread, lust of the flesh. Bow down and worship me, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. Lust of the eyes, all that could be yours. Cast yourself off the temple, the angel of that pride, pride of Every temptation you and I experience is going to come through one of those three avenues. There's multiple you know, iterations of what that can be, but they all fall into three categories. But what he tried to do, what he did accomplish in Eden, what he could not accomplish with Christ, he's still trying to accomplish in your life and mine. Which brings us to the application. Who has Ephesians uh, six ten? I think it is six ten and eleven. Well, finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Be strong in the war. In the, read that again. Be strong in the Lord. Be strong in the Lord and in that, the power right of there. Be strong in the Lord. That's an imperative. That's a command. It's a present tense command. We're to be strong in the Lord every day, every moment. Not be caught off guard. And then secondly, what's he say? And in the power of his might. Okay, go on. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wild. Put on. Another present tense command. 
the armor is not something we, we jerk on when we see the enemy coming. The armor is something we get up out of bed with all, that we wore it all night and the day before the day before that. We're to put it on, keep it on, constantly watching. And the whole point of that is that we must always actively resist the devil and his temptations. We excuse and justify so many things, even a lot of little things that we don't even think of as sin because we've so justified them in our hearts and minds that we do every day. We've all got to understand those are critical, crucial moments when we're allowing Satan to direct our lives instead of God. It's just what he wants. And certainly what we don't want, which is, you know, we just grow weary with the resisting. We go weary with putting on the armor and keeping it on all the time. And, but we have a responsibility to resist. That's the great application I think we can see from all this. You know, by the time you get to be our age, there's always a lot of things you can look back on in your life and regret. All of them. <clears throat> now, we live in we are possessors of God's grace, so we should not let that be something that robs us of our joy. We have complete forgiveness in Christ. But in our weakness as human beings, we do end up regretting things. Because of all those moments, we didn't resist. In a lifetime of regret over a moment's decision, not equal balances. I think we'll stop right there, because that's his application. I think that means stop. stop. And I think the clock is saying stop. But I do want to just take a moment to do it. Anything that just Wow, Lord, a light bulb's come on and you've seen something you want to share. Or you have something that's not clear and confusing we can address quickly. Is that an aside from Matthew or is that actual 
verbiage of Jesus. I, I've seen red letter Bibles both ways, so. Mostly red letter Bibles are helpful, but we can't get hung up on everything. Did Jesus say that? Yes. But he would have spoken in probably Aramaic. And when Matthew wrote, he was writing in Greek. It's inspired, part of the inspired scripture. So what Matthew writes is what he said. But in translating, in other words, the inspiration guarantees that what he said, whether it was Aramaic or whatever it was, what he says is correct. And it guarantees that how Matthew records it as correct, and even how Luke records it as correct, although the translation of Luke and the translation of Matthew in the, in the English is not always the same. Uh, even the original writing of Matthew, the original writing of Luke, could have been different, and it's still an inspired translation of his original work. So, it can get confusing. We think maybe we should see the exact same wording in this passage as this passage when it's the same. Uh, part of that's the translation in English. Part of that is just that we have the inspired text, and that's correct and without error, and that's what he said. But he may not even been speaking in Greek. So. In my version. It's not a silly question. It's a hard one. Kind of linking with that, my version had the abomination of desolation in italics, which usually indicates this is something that the translators um, wanted to clarify. So I don't know if that has something to do with. Well, let, let me go back and look at that. It's not something I noticed. Uh, I just think it's interesting because if yeah. Jesus actually said, let the reader understand. And he's basically he's bringing Daniel into the New Testament. He's, right. Understand what Daniel said is going to happen. That, I think that's the point. Yeah. Uh, let me let me do some work this so week and just go back and check the, the Greek and the and, uh, translations to see if I can come up with whether or not translation added the word. Maybe it just said. Abomination, not both. I, I don't know what the deal is, uh, uh, but I, I'm pretty sure it's all there. I don't, which means I don't know why they would have put it in Italian. So I have to figure out why they did it. So. Yeah, it's, it's all there in Daniel. Mm -hmm. yeah. But I'm wondering yes. if it's like in Luke, they say the whole thing, and so they're, they're saying, guys, this is the abomination. Well, let's just go back and look at. Let the reader understand in another dash. And I, I mean, normally that would kind of indicate this is an aside. This is an 
So that's a translation issue because there's no punctuation in the Greek. So it might be helpful, maybe not. Um, there's actually two ways to understand, let the reader understand. I think we need to understand this comes from Daniel. But there's also the fact that they're going to need to understand everything they're about to say about the abomination of desolation in one father. This might be why they put the bad. Wow, these are deep questions. <laughs> You're the one that asked it. <laughs> I didn't say I'd have to be a question. Anybody else?